We're turning this morning in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're at verse 15. Colossians 1 verse 15. And we're going to read right down to verse 22. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. If you have your Bible there, turn to the place, follow the reading. It's not when you hear the word of God, but see it. The words will come up on the screen. We're reading, of course, from the authorized version. Colossians 1, verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God? the firstborn of every creature. For by him are all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now this morning, we are continuing our expository sermons in the book of Colossians. And today I want to direct your attention to Colossians 1 verse 15. It reads, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Now I've entitled my theme this morning, Meditating on the Magnificence of Christ. Colossians 1 verses 15 right down to 22, I believe was one of the most important, most profound, and fullest descriptions of Jesus Christ in his person and work found anywhere in the whole of the Bible. It's certainly a passage that's worthy of careful exegetical study. Did you know that this passage was at the center of one of the most important early church controversies. A man by the name of Arius, an early church heretic, he used Colossians 1 verse 15 to teach and argue that Jesus Christ was only the highest created being of God. That he was not God. That he was not equal with God. He was not eternal like God. Arius argued that Jesus Christ had a beginning, that he was not the only begotten Son of God. Now, Arius had many followers, and those followers became known as 
Arians, a group of people who believed and taught what Arius believed about Jesus Christ. And did you know this morning that the whole of the Jehovah Witness movement, and we could land in there a number of other cults, including the Mormons, they also believe and teach this very same thing that Arius taught. They love to take this text and attack the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. They use this text to attack the doctrine of the Trinity. How ironic that the enemies of God and the gospel would take the very passage or the very text that the Apostle Paul used to extol and exalt the person of Christ and use that very self-same passage to attack his person, to teach that he is just a creature. And I have told you at the start of this series of messages that Colossae was subject to false doctrine, heresy, erroneous teaching. Now, we're not exactly sure of the exact nature of that falsehood that was spreading in the church at Colossae. But at its heart, now listen to me carefully, it was an attack on the person and work of Christ. Part of the early Gnostic teaching was that Jesus Christ was not fully God, that he was a divine creature from God, that he was the highest of a series of emanations come from God, but he's not God. He is not the only begotten Son of God. They deny, of course, that he coexists, one with the Father, that he's co-eternal, and he's co-equal with the Father. So I'm saying this morning, not only was this an attack on Christ's essential deity, but it was also an attack on the doctrine of the Trinity. Arius and his followers, and the modern-day Jehovah Witnesses, and the liberals, and the Unitarians love to ransack the Bible, looking for texts so that they can pull them out of context, twist and pervert them, and impose an obscure meaning on that text, with the aim of attempting to build a case for their teaching that Christ is not God, that there's no essential deity for Christ. There's no doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote this passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I believe he wrote it after praying for the church at Colossae to counteract the heresy in Colossae. Paul was asking the question in his mind, who is Jesus Christ? And his sole purpose immediately after praying for the church was to introduce them to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And as I've said, and I repeat, this is one of the most Christological texts in the whole of the New Testament. What's the Apostle Paul doing? The Apostle Paul is lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ. He's extolling him, who he is, what he's like, and what he's done. And as I've said, it's ironic that the devil and the agents of hell use this very passage to promote heresy that the Apostle Paul used to exalt the true person of Christ. This is indeed a, a literary masterpiece on the doctrine of Christ's person and work. It may have been an ancient form of the creed. It's very pithy. It's easy to read. It's easy to memorize. 
And of course, as we look at it this morning, I want us to meditate in particular on verse 15. And as you think of verse 15, I want you to fill your mind with the magnificence of Christ. Notice three things. First of all, the person that is addressed. It says, who is the image of the invisible God? So look at the word who. We'll pause. It's a relative pronoun. Who is he talking about? So we're going to use a line of reasoning. We're going to use some logic. And we're going to go right back to verse 13. What's his last three words of verse 13? His dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. It's a reference to his dear son. I've already told you the literal rendering of his dear son is the son of his love. And it's a reference to the father, his dear son. We're told something now about his dear son. There's an argument that's being put forth concerning God's dear son. It's in the context of his work as mediator of the new covenant. God's dear son, Jesus Christ, was sent forth by the Father to procure redemption for his people. He alone is the one who redeems his people by the power of his blood. And now he's telling us something else about him. Something else about his dear son. He's the image of the invisible God. The word image here means exact or express image. The Greek word is icon. It means in his heart, Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of the everlasting father, the one who took flesh to procure redemption for us. You see, there's a connection here. Christ's work as mediator in all of its parts and in the context, part of that role as mediator was to reveal to us God in the flesh. Paul says, 1 Timothy 3.16, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Paul also said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. See, God's dear son saves men by the shedding of his blood. He saves them also by revealing the living and the true God to them. How? Because he's the express image of the invisible God. In other words, he's God in the flesh. And remember what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and in the verse 4. He made a very, very important statement. It, it says this um, in 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. In whom the God of this world have blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So he's used the language before. He uses the language again. You see, the true God is revealed to us in the book of nature. We can learn from nature something about God. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth showeth forth his handiwork. 
Psalm 19, verse 1. It was the Apostle Paul again who said in the book of Romans, in uh, Romans uh, 1 and verse 20, he, he made this statement. He, he said, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the created elements, the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything in the universe reminds us that there is a God who's creator, and he is powerful enough to create, and therefore we're accountable to him and dependent on him. It's also true that God has revealed himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. We have to think about special revelation. We learn what God is like there. But I want to tell you primarily, he is revealed fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember Philip asked the question, show us the Father and it will suffice us. John 14 verse 9. What was Christ's reply? He that have seen me have seen the Father. How could he say that? Because he's the image of the invisible God. The focus is on Christ, not only in his role and work as mediator, procuring redemption, but in his role and work as mediator as one who truly reveals God to man. And how does he do that? Why does he do that? Because he's the image of the invisible God. You've got to think of the word image. Think of the queen and her head is on our coinage, the pound notes, um, the pound coins. Uh, You've got to think of back in the first century, Caesar Remember, Jesus said, show me a penny. Whose inscription is this? Whose image is this? Caesar, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God that are things that are God's. So when you think of an image of the invisible God, you're thinking of one who is fully revealing God to us. Think of the word invisible. It means unseen. God is a spirit and that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And as a spirit, he's unseen. As a spirit, he's incomprehensible. As a spirit, he's unknowable unless he reveals himself to us. And how does he reveal himself to us? Fully through the personal work of his son, Jesus Christ. Because he's the express image of his person. You think of a man this morning on a journey. He's got a quest to find God. He's searching for him. He's trying to uncover God. He's trying to know God. He looks at the moon, he looks at the stars, he looks at the sun. He's using his own mind, he's using his own thought patterns, his human reasoning. Can he find God by himself? The answer is no. Why? Because God is not known, God is not found out, God is not discovered, God is not understood, unless God chooses to reveal himself. And what I'm saying this morning, he has revealed himself in nature, And that's a wonderful book to read. He's revealed himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. But he's primarily revealed himself in the person and work of his dear son, Jesus Christ. He has fully revealed himself by his dear son. He fully reveals his glory, his majesty, his beauty. All that he is in his essence, all that he is in his being, he's revealed it in his son. Remember what we read there in John chapter 1 and verse 18. The uh, Apostle John was taken up with this uh, wonderful theme. Uh, He says in John 1, verse 18, these words, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. 
You see, Jesus Christ is the only one who fully reveals this great, glorious being of who God is. And God can't be known unless he makes himself known. And he's made himself known in the person of his son. So it's logic that Jesus Christ then is the exact likeness of the invisible God. He's a direct carbon copy. He's a a duplicate. He's the eternal son of God. He is co-equal with the Father. He's co-eternal. Isn't it interesting here, if you think of the context, read the pronouns. He's been speaking about us giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of saints and light, who have delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And then immediately he switches. The emphasis is no longer on something that's plural, us and we, what what God has done for us, Um, his provision in making us meet for heaven, his deliverance into the kingdom of his dear son, his redemption through his son. No, the emphasis is now on one. The emphasis is now singular. It's who. It's about he. You see, from these verses, we're, we're taking up with the greatness and grandeur of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, he's God's dear son the wonderful son of his love. But did you know something else? That his dear son is the image of him. He's the image of the invisible God. I wonder why Paul felt the need to tell them this. Because the heretics in Colossae were saying, he is not God. He's a creature. He's an angel. He's an emanation. He is not sufficient. Something more. Christ is not enough by himself. Paul's having none of it. No, he says, he is God in the flesh. See, we believe this morning in an incarnate redeemer. He is sufficient for all your need. And you need nothing more but him. And how can he redeem us? How can he forgive us our sins? How can he accomplish these things? Well, here's the answer. He's the image of the invisible God. You see, he's in a wonderful relationship with God. Because he possesses and has the very nature and essence of God. Now this morning I don't have time and I won't do it. But did you know that there's nine express references in the Bible. To the fact that Jesus Christ is called God. There's one of the proofs of his deity. Nine specific references. Starting with Matthew or or Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And his name shall be called Wonderful the Mighty God. Jesus Christ is called the mighty God. God the Father is also called the mighty God if we compare scripture with scripture. There's nine of them. John 1 and 1 is another one. Romans 9 and 4 is another one. 1 Timothy 3, 16 is another one. I'll not give you them all. You, you could look it up. Did you know that Jesus Christ is worshipped and adored as God in the Bible? Did you know that Jesus Christ displayed divine attributes of God? Did you know that Jesus Christ did many wonderful miracles? Did you know that Jesus Christ has many other wonderful titles ascribed to him? Titles that belong to deity. And there's five lines of evidence that we can open up the scriptures. We compare the Bible with other references in the Bible. And we discover we have to bow the knee that Jesus Christ is none other than the eternal son of the everlasting father. 
We made reference to a boat this morning. I think of the Lord Jesus in the boat of the Sea of Galilee. There was a storm there. Maybe you're going through a storm right now. And what did he do? He stood up in that boat and what did he say? Peace be still. And what happened? Immediately the winds and the waves obeyed him. You see, Jesus Christ has power even over the elements, over nature. He's power over disease, power over death. He is, he is all powerful. And here's Paul. And remember, he's a Jew. And he believes in the worship of one God. He's not polytheistic. He doesn't worship many gods. He hates idols. He hates idolatry. He has warned against idolatry and warned against false images. And he's telling us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the person that's addressed. Very quickly, notice the primacy that's announced. It says in our text, the firstborn of every creature. Now, you see, Arius and his followers, Jehovah's Witnesses to this day, seize on the word firstborn, and they corrupt its meaning because they just think of firstborn in relation to time. Jesus Christ, they say, then, is a created being. He is not God. He's not a divine person. He's a mere creature. And of course, what is true of Arius and his followers is true of the cults and the liberals and the modernists and the Unitarians of our day. But they're heretical. They're teaching us heresy because there's a failure to understand the meaning of the firstborn. And, and there's a variety of meanings according to the context that's important to understand. Matthew 1.25 Reference to Mary brought forth her firstborn son. That was a reference to his birth and time. That was a reference to chronology. And firstborn is used in that at Matthew 125 in that sense. It's a reference to the virgin birth, a time when, when Mary brought forth her firstborn son. But it's not exclusively a reference to time or chronology. It's also a reference to rank and to primacy and to preeminence. It speaks of a, an illustrious, prominent position. Did you know that in the book of Job, in Job 18 and 13, it talks about the firstborn of death? What does that mean? Well, in the context, it's a reference to disease. In other words, it's a disease of the most fatal kind. There's many diseases in the world. But here's the most fatal kind of disease, the most powerful, that whenever you're affected by it, you, you can die. And that's what he's getting at. The Bible talks about the firstborn of the poor. You think, of course, of a group of poor people. You think of the oldest in the group. You think, well, he must be the poorest. But that's not the case. It's not a man saying, well, there's nobody poorer than me. The, the firstborn of the poor speaks about the primacy of poverty, the, the, the prominence of poverty among a particular group of individuals. In the book of Exodus, the apostle or, or Moses talks about the firstborn of the nations, speaking of Israel. Now turn over to this reference, and I haven't given you all the references that I could have given you this morning. In Psalm 89 and verse 27, we read this. Also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Now Psalm 89 verse 27 is messianic. I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. 
Notice that Jesus Christ is a king. And it's not a reference to his birth. It's not a reference to beginning as far as time or chronology is concerned. It means a position. It means a station that's primary, that's prominent. See, there's many kings on the earth. But Christ stands head and shoulders above them all. He is king of kings and lord of lords. We could talk this morning of Romans 8, 29, the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, he's the preeminent one, the primate, the most prominent one. And, and his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Hebrews 1 and 6, if you look at it, speaks about when he bringeth his first begotten into the world. When he bringeth his first begotten into the world, the word bringeth in means he existed beforehand. Hebrews 1 and 6. In other words, when this God brought him into the world, what did he say? He said, let all the angels worship him. There's proof of essential deity. Angels, remember, worship God. And worship is only ascribed or given to a divine being. And when he bringeth his first begotten into the world, what did he say? Let all the angels of God worship him. And that's exactly what they did. Remember Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. To argue that firstborn means time, or it's a reference to chronology, means a time when he would begin. It means a time when he was not. It would mean that he was a created being. But think of the context. Not only the meaning of the word firstborn, it can mean chronology, but it doesn't in this context. It means primacy, it means rank, it means preeminence, prominence. But notice the context. Look at verse 16. For by him were all things created. The word for means because. What would that mean if he was just a created being? It means that he would have created himself, which is absurd. It's, it can't be true to the context. Christ has primacy over all creation. Why? Because he created the entire universe. What is Paul saying here? The Lord Jesus Christ is God's dear Son, the Son of God, the one who bled and died in Calvary's tree to save sinners, the one who came into the world because he's the image of God. He came because he is in a unique relationship to God. He alone reveals God because he's the Lord of creation. And he used his creation as the theater, the very place, the sphere of where his redemptive work would be carried out. You think of the stage to which he came. He came to this earth. He came to Bethlehem's manger. He was born for us. He lived for us. He died an atoning death for us. Where did he do it? On the stage outside the city gate of Jerusalem. And there he procured forgiveness of sins. So you've got to think not only of the person who's addressed, but you've got to think about the primacy that's announced. Also think this morning of the purpose that is assumed. Now, why did Paul say this? Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? I believe that his purpose as we finish this morning was twofold. First of all, there's a warning thought here. He's thinking about false teachers, false teaching in Colossae. And what is the center of every error, heresy, 
every ideology, the center of all idolatry, the center of every offense and abuse and lawlessness and ungodliness. What is at the center of all that? Is this fundamental question. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Who is Jesus Christ? Will the real Jesus Christ of the Bible stand up? Yes, he's the man of Galilee. And I believe in the true historicity of Jesus Christ in his uh, humanity. He lived his life in a real flesh and blood body. But he was more than just a man. He's the Lord from glory. He's the mediator of the new covenant. He's the mediator who saves. He's the master who saves. He's the Lord from heaven. See, if we think of Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of the everlasting Father, the second person of the Holy Trinity, then it's it's crucial we think properly of who he is. If we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that he has a true manhood and a true godhood, then everything else will fall into place because Christ is the chief, the best treasure, the sum total of all things. So there's a warning thought here that when he introduces this, he wants us to focus on who Jesus is, the person that he's addressed, the primacy that is announced. And here's his purpose. I'm warning you to to stay clear of of all the heresy that, that, that denies what we have just taught you about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something else as we close. There's not only a warning thought here, but a worshipping thought. The passage, you see, the whole passage, and we're only taking verse 15, stands like a a creedal statement. And someone has rightly said that the theology of the person and work of Christ should always lead to praise and to true worship. And as you contemplate the excellency and glory of Jesus Christ in his teaching and work, then learn to stand in awe of Christ. Don't miss that sense of awe, that sense of wonder, that sense of adoration, because I believe that goes to the heart of the passage. You see, if it's true, and I can't prove it, that this is indeed a creedal statement of Paul's day, that the apostles believed and preached and taught, then they put it over as a a very useful teaching tool. As I've said, in the Greek, the the, uh, text or sentences are very short. They're easy to memorize. They're like pithy statements, but they're very profound. And what Paul wants us to do is in our hearts, adore and worship Christ. Fill our hearts and minds with him. If Christ is all we need, then you say, Christ is all I need. Focus on him. Do you know him this morning? Is he your Lord and Redeemer? Has he revealed the living and the true God to you? See, let's remember we're blind to God. Let's remember we're dead in trespasses and sins. We we can't see him and we can't know him by ourselves. And of course, we're opposed to the cults. We condemn them for resting the scriptures. But let's remember this. There but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go you. He has opened our blinded eyes to let us see this truth. He has opened our hearts to receive this truth. 
So before we stand in condemnation of them and point the finger, let's offer prayer that their eyes might be opened and their heart might be touched. Let me ask as we finish, how do you get saved? How do you become a Christian? And I said this to the young people on Friday night. There's something that you must admit, and it's this, that you're a sinner in need of God's salvation, a guilty, hell-deserving sinner. The publican said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Paul said, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Not only is there something to admit, there's someone to accept, and that someone is Christ. It's not the church that saves us, Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. But there's also somewhat to announce. There has to be not only a belief in the heart, but there has to be a confession with the mouth. And what is Paul doing here? He's led of the Holy Spirit to confess to the church at Colossae that Jesus Christ is the express image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, the one who stands as the primate of all creatures. The one who is in that preeminent, prominent position. Because he is their creator. He's the Lord of glory. So there's three things that we learn here as we meditate on the magnificence of Christ. The person that's addressed. It's God's dear son. He's God incarnate. We have an incarnate saviour. You've got to think of the primary that's being announced here. He stands head and shoulders above every creature because he created them. That's what Paul is teaching here. It's not time, not chronology. It has to do with rank and position. It has to do with station. And oh, the cults could see that. And then think of his purpose. It's a warning. Oh, that we would heed the warning. Oh, that we would worship in our hearts. Because the Bible says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And you can only truly worship him when you come to know him through our Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you can say in truth, I'm saved. The Lord bless you this morning. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening.